the value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Last week was an important week for inflation watchers worldwide. And maybe worldwide is an exaggeration, but there were key numbers from the United States of America and also the United Kingdom. With me is Ian Cunningham, who's co-head multi-asset growth at 91 in London. People keep saying the word sticky. I don't know why sticky came into the people's vocabulary, but uh, that's what they're saying. Inflation is proving to be sticky. I would say persistently worrisome. That would be my phrase. What do you think, Ian? Mm. Hi, Lindsay. I think... I mean, as you say, sticky is probably the most likely scenario. So I think we've been primarily concerned while the market's sort of been pricing progressively over the last sort of three or four months, the market's been looking for sort of a, the soft landing coupled with inflation sort of gradually moving back towards the Fed's target over the next sort of 18 months or so. And I think the big challenge with that dynamic is that there is an imbalance in the labor market in the US, which has been driven by sort of all the previous excess stimulus and the uh, demand boom, all the money supply growth and that very tight labor market. I'm sure you've seen the statistics and the Fed now quote them quite widely that you've basically got two almost still almost two job openings for every one unemployed person in the US, which is um, a notable imbalance. And ultimately, that's led to wage growth and wage growth remains relatively sticky and the fed have sort of firmly been saying in the last few months that wage growth is inconsistent with inflation returning to their target so i think our core our core view our scenario for a little while has been that ultimately inflation will will likely be somewhat stickier for longer than people think and it's probably a precondition that the fed need to cause a slowdown in the economy to address the imbalance in the labor market to be able to actually return inflation back to their target. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because the capital market seems to be uh, telling us exactly that. I don't look at the range of instruments that you do at 91, but I look at the US 10-year and I see it currently trading... um uh, sorry, I'm thinking of the South African market. But around about 40... We hope, we hope it doesn't get that high. Oh, goodness me, then we won't be in a job. Um, either of us, I don't, I don't think. But let me just get that up on screen now, because it has risen quite substantially, not as much as, as other markets. Mm. But um, it's an interesting move. The South African 10-year, 10.21, that was the one where I got my 10 from. But the US 10-year, mm. now 3.86%, has on occasion in the last few days sort of threatened to go in the high 390s and maybe even to four percent but it's telling us that the market is expecting no interest rate stabilization at least a couple more hikes what do you think Hmm. yes i think when we look at market pricing we're sort of where we are today is is basically what the fed is is saying or, or guiding so the market's basically looking at the front end for fed funds to peak out and sort of stay there for a while at about five and a half percent. And then obviously you've got a pretty deep inversion further down the curve. And so obviously the, the US curve is now the most inverted it's been in a couple of decades. If you just look between either base rates and 10 years or two, two years and, and 10 years. So I think ultimately you, you get these sorts of dynamics taking place during inflation fighting periods. And typically the long end of the curve is always going to anchor around sort of trend nominal GDP within the US economy. So when you're going through this period where inflation's higher for a period of time, then you should get those decent curve inversions. So our central view is at five and a half percent in Fed funds. That should be enough because it's restrictive. So if you think about where the equilibrium interest rate is within the US economy, we think it's sort of about the Fed think it's two and a half to three percent. I think we maybe think it's slightly higher based upon how some sort of structural changes have been evolving over the last sort of five years or so. But if policies at five and a half, then we're notably above that equilibrium interest rate. And as long as the Fed stay there, then growth and inflation should come back to them, i.e. 
the restrictive policy should cause that slowdown to take place across growth and inflation. It's not an overnight process. Of course, some people were talking about inflation maybe being down at uh, the four and a half, five percent level by now. But as you've pointed out, it's not going away in the very near term. Now, what historically has been the resultant effect on the economy with all mm. its facets of a steep yield curve inversion? Mm. So I mean, if you think about what a yield curve inversion is, basically the long end of the curve as we say, anchors around trend nominal GDP. And that's sort of the average return you can get if you make investments within the economy, because that's the rate the economy is sort of broadly growing at. Yes. And obviously, the front end is a financing rate. So if the financing rate is much cheaper than the average return that you get in the economy, then people borrow, people invest, people consume. When the average financing rate is, say, if it's five and a half, and then you can only invest at for to generate a return of three and a half, you're, you're not going to do it. So naturally, the economy starts to, to slow down. So usually, the inversion is a signal of those dynamics, because the long end is anchoring to the average prospective return in the economy, and the front end is effectively the financing rates, if that makes sense. It does make sense. What doesn't make sense to me is the labour market. And as you came up with those stats earlier on, for every two job openings there are, there's only one person that could possibly be chasing them. So that's a tight labour market. I spoke to a clever friend of yours at 91 in London, and he said one of the things he looks at, rather than the actual unemployment rate or the monthly non-farm payrolls, he looks at the jobless claims and he says once they start to rise, then that's a signal that he's got to start watching the potential of an oncoming recession. Is that the way you see it too? I think that's uh, a very fair point. And I think the big challenge is, is both inflation and the labour market are very much lagging in their nature. So we would ultimately say that because the Federal Reserve only started hiking policy less than a year ago, mm. um, and they came from a very low base. So they didn't get restrictive from a policy perspective, i.e. above the rate of equilibrium interest rates until about sort of the end of the third quarter of last year. Now, if you think about the lags that it takes, it usually takes six to 12 months in policy lags for the actual impact of restrictive policy to take hold and actually impact the underlying labor market and the like. So you're probably looking about the middle of this year to the third quarter of this year for the full impact of this current hiking cycle to be to actually be felt and to be to be seen properly in the data across the broad economy obviously we're seeing very leading indicators like conference board leading indicator new orders to inventory and the like within manufacturing all pointing to a soft patch coming through but it's it's going to be a while till you see the full effect on some of the particularly the likes of the labour market, which is naturally more more lagging. Putting all this together, all the points that you've so eloquently made, let's have a look at the 91 strategy and positioning your co-head of multi-asset growth. What are you up to at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment, I mean, our core views, I mean, the two big picture views that are probably most important to people is I think we see a pretty robust recovery coming through in China over the next year or so after sort of a reopening of the economy, sort of doubling down on stimulus and sort of a lot of pent up demand. Um, and on the other side of the world in the US, I think our, our core scenario is, is, as we just discussed, is as all that latent tightening hits the economy in the middle of this year, we think that the odds are on for the US sinking into a recession later on this, this year. So we're pretty light on risk assets in general, but where we do have risk asset exposure, we have a bias or a notable allocation within sort of Hong Kong and China from an equity perspective. And then within government bond markets, as you said, sort of yields have generally got a lot higher relative to where a couple of years ago. And if our central scenario is more for a recession with central banks generally being 
reasonably well priced here. We've generally overweight or long of duration, but we are long of duration in markets where there's quite notable sort of housing leverage imbalances and potentially housing bubbles. So that's countries like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Sweden, for example. And then in currencies, we remain pretty defensive. So long of dollars, yen and Swiss francs versus some of the currencies of the countries I've mentioned that have those sort of leverage imbalances within them. Ian, thanks so much for your time. That's Ian Cunningham, co-head of multi-asset growth at 91 in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.